Established way back in 1974, Allspec are one of Australia's leading aluminium system suppliers with 14 locations and nearly 600 staff across the country. Specialising in the design, testing and supply of commercial windows and doors, Allspec continue to develop innovative and advanced systems that lead the industry in terms of performance. With innovative designs, testing and supply and a service offering that is simply second to none, Allspec has become the leading partner for both systems fabricators and the architectural community alike. For more information, go to www.allspec.com.au. Welcome to Talking Architecture and Design. My name is Branko Melitic and today we have with us in our ever-increasing virtual studio, Brett Diprose. Prior to joining Warren and Mahoney, Brett held the position of Associate Director with Pedalthorpe Architects. In his role, Brett was in charge of the sports architecture arm, which sounds fascinating actually, including a large portfolio of aquatic projects, such as the Metro Sports Facility in Christchurch, which is a joint venture with uh, Warren and Mahoney, um, the Melbourne Sports and Aquatic Centre Stage 2 for the uh, 2006 Commonwealth Games, uh, and uh, in the 2007 World Swimming Championships and in Swansea and the Charlestown Leisure Centres. Brett believes a stadium or sports facility has the capacity to support and enhance the identity of a city. He also believes the process of developing an, an understanding of our client, of, of his clients rather, and their ambition for our project is vital, is a vital importance, should I say, to creating a unique identity for any sporting project. So welcome to Talking Architecture and Design, Brett Diprose. Thanks very much, uh, Branko. It's great to be here and I really appreciate the invitation. Look, I've got to say, this, this sounds like we're going to have a conversation about sport uh, this afternoon, which is not, not the worst thing I've done on a Friday, Arvo, but <laughs> I should have brought some beer with me. Um, sports, are, sports architecture, like, Excuse my ignorance. I mean, I know what it is, but how big is it? It's a very niche kind of industry. Um, and it's, it's the kind of um, area where you can blend your passion for sport, as you just mentioned, with passion for architecture. So it's been a very, very unique opportunity in my career. Um, at the beginning of all careers, there's the opportunity to move from or specialise in various fields. And uh, thankfully, I was given the opportunity on a number of significant projects at the very um, early phases of my career, which have, um, have been very fruitful and have um, put me in front of a lot of people that are passionate about sport and the contribution that sport makes to community life to health and well-being, and I think what we've discovered during the COVID um, pandemic period is that uh, there is a desperation in the community to be together, to play sport together, and that sport builds communities. It creates a sense of belonging amongst people and it really unifies people, and we've really missed that over the last 18 months. You, you say it's niche, but it's not really that niche, is it? Because um, get, it, get it wrong... And it's the front page of every newspaper. <laughs> so it's not that absolutely, absolutely. isn't it? So there's actually there's a, there's a um, how do I put it a societal, I guess, um, importance attached to sports architecture, isn't there? Absolutely, and you're right. It, what it does is it actually is a touchstone for communities across the planet. So it's not just um, regional facilities 
or what you would see in terms of elite sport facilities. I mean, it, you could either go and watch a spectator sport and you're one of 100,000 people. If you're at the MCG, you go to a, a swimming championship or a school championship or a Commonwealth Games or an Olympics. You're with thousands of people sharing in a, a unifying experience. And then on a Saturday morning, you're supporting your daughter in gymnastics, in my case, or a son in basketball or... Um, Little League or AFL or rugby or netball or there's so many sports across the board and so many people involved in sport um, from a volunteer point of view to uh, an education point of view from a, um, an elite sport training and leadership point of view. There's just a fascinating group of people involved in the industry um, and it's been, as I say, a real privilege to, to meet some of those people over the journey. And, uh, and on that point, um, you've been nominated also um, in the education category, which is sponsored by um, our wonderful friends over at Alspec. But the, in, in the education category for, our, for the 2021 Sustainability Awards for the La Trobe University Sports Park, which is kind of combining both as education and sport, um, which is great. But wait, there's more. Um, this is actually fantastic. Of course, there's, there's, a, there's a huge sustainability uh, edge on this, isn't there? So can you tell me more about the Latrobe Uni Sports Stadium? It is an Australian first, apparently, isn't it, Brett? It's, it, it generates more energy on the site than it uses, making it basically net positive. It's also the first sports building in Australia to be awarded the highest, um, the highest rating for both design and build by the Green Building Council of Australia. How did you guys design this? Um, like, without sort of, you know, going into, into the minutiae, I guess, because it's, a, it's quite complex. What was the process to get to this level of sustainability? And why on earth can't everyone else do this too? Yeah, I think it's, it's a really good question in that you need the right client with the right level of ambition. The project started off uh, as a catalyst project to really blend the boundaries between the community um, that had a significant demand for sporting infrastructure. Uh, so that, that was AFL ovals, pavilions, um, soccer facilities, or football facilities, and then um, also blending that aspect of research, training, development within the university. And then secondary to that was how, how does the boundaries blur between community and, and university life? So what does this project contribute to the student experience in that kind of space? Which was, which was one of the critical things. So that, that was one of the key sort of drivers at the very beginning of the project, that student experience aspect. And from a sustainability point of view, really what we're talking about is making it a more holistic kind of approach to the student experience. So understanding that there's an academic requirement, but there's also very much a social requirement and sport plays a large part in, in that sort of tertiary coming of age sector where students are really testing their own independence and understanding who they are as individuals away from uh, family environments. And but sometimes they're living away from home in those kind of situations. So, so really the university experience is, is that first sort of foray into independence 
and independent living and finding out who you are. And sport plays a really important point in that. The, um, the university had traditionally been quite um, segregated in terms of its student experience when it came to sport. And now it was quite ambitious in that kind of space. So from a sustainability point of view, there was that aspect of that more social sustainability. But then there was a, an increasing ambition as we amalgamated a number of quite separate sports that had their own kind of little sheds um, separated across the sports park and identified that there were a number of sports and that if we amalgamated those facilities together, then the footprint was going to be significantly smaller. There was going to be efficiency of structure uh, and of space and that we could align uh, various uses over that duration and over that period through that process. At Warren Amani, we sort of believe in an approach where sustainability is something that we really want to put front and centre. So we have an ambition of being um, and being and working with our clients to achieve net zero um, carbon by 2030. That's not necessarily um, a thing that segregates us from the industry at the moment, but as an organisation, we've been net zero for 15 years. So we identified that a very long time ago as a significant kind of element of our business. Moving forward, that was going to drive um, the kind of clients that we worked with and the kind of work that we produced and the kind of jobs that we pursued. And Latrobe sat into that category. Now, when we initially started the project, we didn't go into it thinking we're going to achieve a six-star green star rating. Uh, but in the back of our minds, that was the approach that we have as an organisation to actually embedding those principles within the design work from the very onset. What that enabled us to do with this project, um, which isn't the ideal situation, and we've done subsequent projects where we are um, embedding principles and guidelines and strategies from the very outset. Um, what, what we had with Latrobe was a situation where we um, were able to sort of move through the design phases. And it wasn't until design development that Green Star was even put on the table. But because of the various strategies and approaches that we'd had through the concept design and schematic design phases of the project, to transition to a Green Star approach was actually a relatively easy process. And it was more about um, making sure that our administrative requirements with the GBCA were really being addressed because the core principles and strategies had been identified in that process. So what we're talking about with Latrobe is a facility that um, has six individual or six uh, courts on, um, on the footprint of the building. Uh, they are separated into three three-court halls and each one of those halls is naturally ventilated. So from the outset, we had this flexibility and adaptability approach where we were going to um, naturally ventilate the sports courts, and then the adjacent education spaces were going to be high thermal performance, um, have large PV arrays on the roof, and we almost we ended up all with a PV array of almost 500 kilowatts, which is how we get to net, net carbon zero, um, where we generate more energy than we're actually using on site. And then 
segregating that space so that there was almost two parts of the building. There was the conditioned thermal envelope of the building, and then there was the naturally ventilated aspect of the building that could then be addressed if we were going to run, say, a show court scenario in the future where the expectations around patron comfort could be addressed in, in greater uh, propensity in that, that kind of situation. So it was a very arduous process and we sort of transitioned from an ambition at design development from a five-star approach um, to a design and construct approach. Originally, it was going to be delivered as a lump sum, um, fully documented kind of project and we, um, we pivoted and transitioned, I guess, through that process to get to a point where we could um, deliver the project as a design and construct project. We then engaged with the contractor who was at co-constructions to, to pursue and to document and to deliver to that five-star strategy. And then what we found by the time we got to the end of um, the documentation and Arup were our um, ESD consultants on the project, they were, they were pivotal in terms of identifying that with a little bit of administrative support from the university, we could take that five-star rating up to a six-star rating. So that um, evolved around um, the kind of selection of materials that we chose, the um, water storage on site with a large roof area that was a significant um, advantage, the um, thermal performance of the building, natural daylighting, orientation of building, um, selection of glazing, et cetera, all contributing to the process and then efficient mechanical and hydraulic systems to support that. Okay, so you've you've designed a lot of sports facilities, as we mentioned, um, and also in your bio intro as well. Um, how do you define sustainability in, in, in a, for a sports facility differently to say you would an office? And by by that, I'm asking a sports facility. Well, okay, I'm generalising here. Most sports facilities, most large sports facilities, are not used. 24-7 or you know, five days out of seven, let's say. Most offices are, most commercial spaces, some more, but for, for example. Um, so is there a different way of, of, of approaching sustainable design when it comes to a sports facility? Are there different paradigms? Or, or, or how do you actually look at, look at it? Because when I look at, you know, the, the biggest, uh, if you remember, I'm sure you remember this, the, um, uh, what was it, the footy stadium here in Sydney? You know, they, they, the biggest whinge was, or one of the biggest whinge about the money, was the fact that, you know, it's empty most of the time. And I, I noticed um, last, or actually earlier this year, there was a, an Austrian um, design firm, like architectural firm, that came up with this novel idea to turn a soccer stadium into a forest when it's not being used, which I thought was kind of interesting. <laughs> Didn't say that. You know, it's actually, it was on design, I think. It was actually really fascinating, but... Um, do you approach? I mean, do you approach sustainability from a different sort of angle when it comes to um, sports architecture, or how, or how does it work? Yeah, I don't know whether we approach it from a different point of view. But we certainly have our ambitions and um, strategies in place to to limit our footprint. I think you take that similar kind of approach to most most projects, but 
you've got quite a few sort of variations of building typology with within the sports sector. So you could have your stadium work, which, as you say, is used on weekends um, and is more about that event kind of space and experience and how that sort of transitions and how how you utilise that. It's about reducing your energy usage, reducing your your upfront sort of carbon footprint very early in the process. Uh, then you've got your large-scale basketball stadiums, you've got indoor venues, you've got outdoor venues, you've got small pavilions um, that have very small footprints but a large number of toilets in that kind of space. So um, that's a real challenge. And then you've got your high-end energy use building typologies like aquatic centres, which are running 365 days of the year, um, seven days a week, and 24 hours a day, which are effectively the most energy-hungry building typologies you can get. So in that instance, it's a matter of focusing on an approach that is relevant to that building typology. So I think your approach to a stadium would be very different in terms of that event really limiting the uh, the energy load and, and minimising it as much as you can at various stages um, through that experience. Things like um, daylighting and um, the amount of energy you would use in an event scenario will become important in kind of that space. Your internal venues that are internal sports stadiums are all about, as you said before, getting the maximum programming you can out of that space. And that's what we did at La Trobe University where because we were able to amalgamate the, the use of the facility for community use after hours and yet use the, the facility for use of the university during business hours, what we've done is actually really maxed out that kind of space. And we haven't seen it, seen it to its full um, capacity at this stage, but I have been in the venue when, when it's been used on weekends by um, community sport, so community basketball particularly, and place was heaving so all that did was fill me with a great sense of joy and and happiness that it was being used now open up the the natural ventilation let the building breathe and you're still getting the unique experience of an indoor venue naturally ventilated with with very low energy use uh, so that that provides substantial benefit as well and then you close that up um, and have a very um, well sealed thermal environment and you've got a um, a great internal space that doesn't need to be heated because the people utilising it as a training venue are actually generating the heat in that kind of space. So how you balance that is really important. Um, so, yeah, it's, a, it's about creating that unique response to a typology really is what we're talking about. Okay. That's, that's actually fascinating. So can I ask then, has COVID, the pandemic, has has it changed now how, how, you, how architects look at um, sports facilities? I mean, you know, I know that when you, when you build a stadium or, let's say, an aquatic centre or, you know, tennis courts or whatever, um, you know, you're looking at a, a long-term use. And we don't know. I mean, we, we're hoping that we don't have to hear the word COVID ever again in 2022. But let's assume... <laughs> It's it's taught us something. Let's let's assume that you know there may well be another pandemic around the corner in the next few years. Has this experience changed the way that architects such as yourself look at 
how a sports centre is designed? It certainly has influenced the way that communities interact with one another and the way that we operate these facilities. So very early in the pandemic, we started looking at things like what is what are the touch points of, of people utilising the facility? So instead of having doors that needed to be manually opened, we were looking at more auto doors in that kind of space to really minimise and reduce the, uh, the, the contact points and the environments that people could be touching and, and, and sharing disease in that kind of space. So that, that's a very sort of practical kind of response in, um, to, to COVID and its implications in that kind of space. But I think there's more um, economic impacts as well. So the things like less and less people carry cash these days. We're relying on our phones more than ever to, to communicate digitally. So technology and um, its use will dramatically change the kind of buildings that we design in that kind of space. So you've got cafe spaces, you've got um, pay points, you've got um, concierge relationships, the operational footprint and operational impact of the facility really changes. The way that staffing is undertaken and um, the exposure of staff and the, the relationship between staff and patrons will change. I think we haven't seen what the impact is gonna be on events and that, and that kind of space. And I, I'm fascinated to see how that will transition. But I think what COVID has actually done is it's actually shifted what we believed was possible. So it's actually shifted our horizon in that kind of position to, to elevate it to a much higher, higher level where we can actually do more things than we actually thought we could do previously. And then when you sort of go back to um, addressing things like net zero carbon and carbon footprints and embodied carbon and operational carbon. I think those conversations have been brought forward because we need to care for the environment that, um, that we're creating. We need to understand our footprint. I think there's a very strong relationship between culture and identity and the way that our relationship to environment sort of creates a unique experience as well. And I think probably more than ever, we're aware of um, how damaging our footprint has been over the years. So I think from a sustainability point of view, it touches on so many aspects, the social, the economic, the, the patron experience, the event experience. Um, all of those areas are going to transition and, and change. But I think we've never felt more responsible for the kind of environments that we create as architects than we do right now. And I think that's been a really strong pivot point. Okay, that's, that's actually interesting. You, you mentioned place culture heritage. Um, I noticed on the, on the company website, it says, and I quote, we're guided by one, principle, one central principle, our belief that capturing and reflecting identity is key to making, making places that work for their users. Identity is the understanding of self grounded in place, culture, heritage, and a sense of purpose, which kind of what you just touched on now Getting away from, from sport, getting away from any, anything like, like sports or education, which I'll, which I'll touch on in a moment, can you give me an example of what that looks like in, let's say, in, a, in, a, in an urban, urban planning um, sort of scenario? In a city scenario is what I'm trying to say. We need to actually 
think about urban environments in the city quite differently. We, we've been sort of in a position where we've looked at history very much from a pre-colonial um, or post-colonial approach traditionally in terms of the way that we've been educated and those kind of things. And I think there's a real push to, to understand that our um, very short lifespan on this planet is just a scratch in terms of a much larger history in that kind of space. So we, we understand, and I think an example of it, um, as you've mentioned, Branko, is really my experience on the Metro Sports Facility in Christchurch. So when we were engaged in that pro project and process, what was what one of the really key drivers to that project was um, the sense of place and the sense of who we are and what our level of responsibility is and how we reflect culture and how that culture is reflected in the here and now with what we're designing and what we're doing, but also the, what we want to project into the future and what we want as messages and stories and shared knowledge that we actually pass on to the next generation um, that will be using a facility such as that. So one of, one of the really powerful kind of experiences that we took on that project was to, um, to go to a Marae, um, so one of the local iwi um, sort of community houses is, is probably the best way to describe them. And the Marae that we went to was, was very much um, where well, it was one of it was the Marae where the Treaty of Waitakere was was signed, and that was an incredibly powerful day that pointed us towards the fact that there is a responsibility for the environment that we are building on, that there is a history and a memory and an understanding. So it was a matter of um, identifying that these are my hills, this is my river, this is my responsibility, this is my ownership. As designers, we felt that very heavily and we were able to respond to that by using some of the cultural stories reflected in the design. So as an example, the Metro Sports Facility is a very large aquatic um, competitive sporting environment. So it's got a 50-meter pool and a dive, dive tower, but it's also got a very large leisure area. And then it's got... Um, the, inter the intermediate sort of program spaces like dance studios and program rooms and the like, community sort of meeting spaces in the central space of it, and then a dry court arrangement, so a three-court show court that has capacity for 2,500 people and international events to be held, and then community courts beyond that, which were the six basketball courts, and that was sort of um, also accommodating a, a space for high-performance sport New Zealand in that space, uh, so office spaces and gym spaces that really sort of let the public engage with the elite level of sport. Now, all of that made sense from a, a functional planning point of view and a programmatic point of view. However, when we took a step back and sort of had a 30,000 foot view of the project and understood its position in relation to um, our experience, it's the history of the site and took a... A, a much larger view of the project, we were able to embed storylines around that were, were embedded in 
in Maori culture and, and history specific to, to Christchurch in the design. So the design that we came up with effectively um, put meaning to the wet um, component of the project and put meaning to the dry component of the project and acknowledged that there were certain um, representations of those two elements within Maori culture um, and mythology and storytelling. And that then the intermediate spaces were a reflection of that. So effectively, the wet bar was the mother, um, the dry bar was the father, and the, um, the intermediate spaces were the offspring that had responded to various um, cultural upbringing aspects. So that was a fascinating sort of aspect to reflect identity and place in the work um, that we were doing. And we, and we seek to doing that in Australia as well. But... The, the aspect of that is that we actually need to be really humble about our approach. With, with our, ourselves as an organisation at Warren Amani, we, we don't have all the answers. We are curious about what we actually want to explore um, and we want to work with people collaboratively in a, in a co-design situation. So we're not going to come in and, and put a, a design on the table and say, that's it. We're actually interested in the dialogue, in the storytelling, in the, in the imbuing of the design to reflect those cultural aspects that maybe we weren't aware of at the very beginning. And, and mo in most cases, we, we certainly weren't. But there are aspects of that that are actually informing the design. So... As an example of that, we're undertaking the, the North Aquatic Centre at the moment and with um, a number of uh, Wurundjeri elders, we are working with them to, to imbue the design with an overlay of meaning that actually responds to um, the country, to caring for country and to acknowledging the, the history of the site in that kind of space. And we're actually doing that by um, taking the, the motif of the kingfisher um, and we're doing that because the kingfisher and the sacred kingfisher specifically in its species is a, a species of, of bird that actually returns to its habitat, to its ecology, when it's balanced and on an even kilter. And really what we're seeking to do with our design work is heal the land to not scar the land and to really balance that ecology between the impact of actually putting a building on a site versus its performance and life's life um, aspect as it sort of continues on its trajectory for sort of the next 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years and being responsible to a more holistic response to, um, to the project in terms of its design in that kind of space. Established way back in 1974, Alspec is one of Australia's leading aluminium system suppliers with 14 locations and nearly 600 staff across this great big country. Specialising in the design, testing and supply of commercial windows and doors, Alspec continued to develop innovative and advanced systems that lead the industry in terms of performance. With design, testing and supply and a service offering that is simply second to none, Alspec has become the leading partner for both systems, fabricators and the wider architectural community alike. So for more information, go to www.alspec.com.au. And now back to our podcast. If if I if I if I can distill down what you what you just said, to increase sustainability, and you can correct me if I if I've misunderstood what you misunderstood what you've said, 
to increase sustainability, we need to have our own identity in terms of architecture. And in this, in this case, it's an, an Australian style, okay? Um, mm. Which, in other words, it, it, a style that actually fits, you know, the environment where Absolutely. we are. Okay, so, okay, so without having every, every house look like a Queenslander, what would an Australian style actually look like? It's a really, really interesting question. I think it's going to have a sense of place. Um, I mean, the simple aspects of the correct orientation. I mean, traditionally, Australian houses have been designed in such a way that they, they focus on a particular kind of orientation for a particular reason and haven't paid any attention to um, see that sense of place beyond that or anything like that. Uh, so a, a real sense of place is really what we're talking about, um, but it's it's that blending of a reflection of uh, the people that are existing in that space, acknowledging what has gone before and what they want to project into the future. Let's get on to you, you spoke about education and you spoke about technology. Um, technology, um, well, here we are in, in a Zoom meeting, right? Technology has changed the way we interact with other human beings and, and, you know, education is just another way of interacting or another, another form of, of, of human interaction. Um, technology has also changed the way you guys design buildings now, hasn't it? I mean, and as technology, um, how would I say, develops, I guess, or it changes itself, the way you, you know, architects, view a building, view an office, view a educational space um, also changes. Do you think that um, there's, in terms of design, do you think that, that our designs for, for education are, are not keeping up with uh, technology or the in, increases in technological change or the, or the improvements in technology or whatever the, the proper term is? I think from an education point of view, our buildings have a lot of opportunities in them to, to actually address the way that we educate. And there's, there's a number of things that we're talking about now in that kind of space. So education could mean a whole bunch of things. For me as a sports architect, education is about physical literacy as much as it is about economics, uh, sorry, academia, or um or being musically talented or anything like that. So we're, we're undertaking um, some design work at the moment with um, the Presbyterian Ladies College in Melbourne where we've really put the girls front and centre in terms of that educational experience and understanding that not everyone is great at ball sports. Not everyone is a swimmer. Not everyone is aware of their physical literacy, how, the, how they live and move and what gives them energy when they move in that kind of space. Uh, so it's a matter of addressing that and to create holistic, well-rounded human beings. You need a balance of the physical, you need a balance of the mental, spiritual, um, creating that sense of place and identity in the world so that you're actually giving people confidence to become the best versions of themselves in that kind of space. Now, what we're finding with technology is that we can actually respond more directly to individual students so that they can be, become the best version of themselves in that kind of space. And I think there's a matter of creating 
environments, particularly in the education space, that are adaptable and flexible and can respond to, to technology um, and never have students had more opportunity uh, in terms of exploring aspects of what they might like to pursue as a, as a career or, or a passion or work out what they really love about and what their skill set is uniquely placed um, we're in a position now more than ever to actually explore those. And the education environments that we're creating, whether they're primary schools or early learning centres, high schools, tertiary facilities or universities um, or TAFEs or whatever it might be, are unique opportunities for individuals to explore their unique footprint and unique capacity and unique contribution to society and to the world that we live in. And that then flows onto sustainability because it, there's a unique perspective of, of what they bring to the table and a unique awareness of their responsibility um, as they get older and grow to really address their footprint on, on the planet to understand the implications of that. So the other aspect, I guess, of, of education, when you're creating a built environment, what we've found is that um, one of our sort of key tenements of the 10 key principles of, of our sustainability principles of Warren Amani is, is really about using the building as an education aspect. So when we were designing the PLC facility, we, we thought long and hard about how the girls could get down into the basement plant room, as an example, and understand, understand water chemistry and the way the mechanical systems work and the symbiotic relationship between pool water heating and photovoltaics and the rest of the campus in terms of its environmental footprint, thermal envelope, um, and all of those unique systems and processes that get built into a building that are quite often hidden and behind closed doors, but really opening those up as an opportunity for the students to learn and to engage with the building and to un understand how it could inform the kind of people that they are and the kind of work that they do and be, to become curious about things. Um, so I think there's a unique opportunity in, in those buildings to really communicate that aspect of the why behind the what effectively. Warren and Marnie, I've been calling Warren Mahoney for the whole interview. Sorry about that. Um, is uh, also a leader in um, the field of environmental sustainable design, ESD, and one of the driving forces behind the establishment of the New Zealand Green Building Council and actively involved in the technical development and piloting of Green Star tools. Um, I know some firms I know are, do similar type of work, but why aren't more firms emulating this, this kind of, um, you know, level of engagement involvement? It's a great question. I think previously we might have said that we were leading in that kind of space. I think it's more now a matter of saying that we're humble about the process and that we're adventurous about exploring where the opportunities are. So I don't think we're actually leading rather than exploring our curiosities in that kind of space. And an example of that is um, some PhD research that we're doing uh, with the University of, of Wellington at the moment in regards to understanding 
what the data is actually saying about our carbon footprint. Um, so how do we design, how do we value, how do we measure low carbon architecture and, and what is our role in creating um, case studies, guidelines, recommendations, precedents for how we can um, share our knowledge with, with a, a cohort of architects. So not sort of corralling our information and being very protective about it, but being free to actually give that information and to share that information with the industry. So whether that's suppliers or whether that's um, other architects or whether it's contractors or clients. If we're in a, a position where we're actually giving information away or sharing information, sharing that knowledge that we're developing be, that's come out of our curiosities and, and that adventurous kind of spirit, I think that's probably where we want to be known, known for at this stage. And what that does, it actually creates greater capacity. So curiosity today means one thing, we go and explore what... Um, what low carbon architecture actually will mean, but that will then lead to different trains of thought that will enable us to pursue those kind of approaches moving forward that will um, sort of power future curiosities. So we, we don't wanna be static. We wanna be moving in a, in a space where our curiosity takes us in one, one direction. And then we find that there's, a, there's another avenue that we can explore beyond that, that becomes open to us because we've been curious in one particular space and then we go and pursue that. So I think that aspect of humility, understanding that we don't know everything, but that I wonder why we don't know everything is probably the question. And what does it take to, to know a bit more? Who do we need to talk to? Who do we need to collaborate with? Who do we want to work with in the, that's identified that it's a, a critical um, or that we're at a critical juncture in society and that we actually need to move down a particular path to make sure that the buildings that we're actually delivering today, um, because the buildings that we're designing today are going to be the ones that are really contributing to a, a net zero outcome by 2030. So there's that kind of strategy and that kind of ambition, that kind of curiosity and adventurous that, adventurousness that we're pursuing to really knuckle down and do the work. And um, I think we'd rather be known for that than, than potentially saying that we're a, a driving force behind New Zealand Green Council or Green Building Council, or that we want to particularly achieve a star rating on a particular building. I think it goes beyond that. It's about a, a mindset. And we really try and imbue that within um, every member of the staff across, across the team. I've got to say that's that's probably one of the biggest changes, isn't it? Isn't it in terms of how architects view themselves as 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 a, as a profession um, and, and as <clears throat> excuse me and as as a vocation. And I think that uh, that started changing sometime. Correct me if I'm wrong. Around the 70s. Um, do you think that that will change more as time goes on? I think, I think I think it will. I mean, in, we've never had more information available at our fingertips than we do now. We What we know um, or what we knew in the 1970s, um, we know a lot more than we did then. 
Uh, so really, in some ways, we're standing on the shoulders of giants um, in that kind of space. And we've got to acknowledge that there was some tremendous work done during those periods to get us to the position where we are today. Uh, I know as an organisation, um, Warren and Money have been around 60, 65 years um, in Australasia, um, less so in Australia, but that's, that's our heritage and that's our pedigree. And it's really come from that original design approach of, of our two um, founding um, principles, which was focused around design excellence and technical excellence. Today, we're, we take those, those pillars and we overlay them with aspects of um, culture, culture and identity of design and technology um, and sustainability and being curious. And we end up at a totally different place of where we would have been previously in that kind of space. So we then sort of ask that aspect of reflection of identity and connection to the environment and our level of responsibility all sort of starts to frame the kind of work that we do. We, we, I don't think as architects we can um, position ourselves in such a way where previously there was there was a key key person within an organisation that that was the font of all wisdom. Um, there's no longer that situation, and architects need to be more collaborative than ever. We need to collaborate with engineers, socialists, politicians, um, regulators, suppliers. Um, economists in some situations to really understand the nuances of the work that we do and why we do it. And, and in that sense, it puts a real highlight on communication more than ever. And so I guess the opportunity of, of architects uh, now more than ever is as key, um, key collaborators and interrogators and disseminators of information and knowing when to lead and knowing when, knowing when to elevate the people that we work with to a position where they can lead based on their skills and experience. Um, and as I said, that goes across every sector, whether it's a politician or a local government authority or a state government or a federal government um, or a position around um, cultural or Indigenous design or any of those kind of things. There's, there's enormous opportunities for leadership um, and to, to really position ourselves in that space. So um, our, our ambition has always been there. It was there in the 1960s and 1970s. It's very much still there today in terms of what we want to do. But there's a greater humility in terms of what we do um, as architects, and I think that will continue to evolve. Uh, there's also a desire to, to really um, harness the power of collective action and to work together and collaboratively with, with our design teams and our clients and suppliers and contractors um, and operators to really understand the nuances of, of what it takes to actually deliver a great building that is responsive to, to place, to environment, to an experience um, of people and patrons and community with urban environments to really make everyone's life better. Okay, speaking of which, if you could design anything in the world, um, what would it be? I'm assuming it's going to be some form of sports architecture, but no, <laughs> I won't preempt anything. What would it be and why do you choose this? It's a great question, Branko, and... and um, 
it made me reflect on my career today. One, one of the first really major um, projects that I worked on was a, a velodrome. And I would love to do another velodrome, um, mainly because it harnesses what I know about buildings. I, I have a love of structure. Um, I have, and these are large band kind of structures, fascinating geometry um, issues uh, and really interesting sort of delivery components to the project. Uh, I have a passion for cycling and I, I believe that cycling contributes to, um, to mental health and well-being in the broader community in that kind of space and, and really supports a lot of my, my own personal sustainability ambitions in terms of reducing our impact through more sustainable means of transportation and those kind of things. Um, so it sort of harnesses a lot of those kind of things, but it also um, creates hubs for development of individual um, excellence and challenge and those real personal kind of aspects of exploring who you are as a person and understanding where your limitations are, where you need to ask for help from other people. Um, it touches on so many of those kind of aspects. So, yeah, if I could design anything in the world, it would be a velodrome. Um, and, but it also raises some challenges in that kind of space because the last velodrome that I um, worked on, the timber for the floor was imported from a Russian forest. So what is the, the embodied footprint of doing that as a process? What is the exploration of large band timber structures as an example? And what, what are the implications of that on the industry and procurement strategies and um, supply chains? And um, then that's gonna really harness future opportunities to, to be curious and explore a number of sort of opportunities in that kind of space. So I could probably talk quite at length about the nuances of that as a building, but um, that that's that would be my answer, Branko. Brett Diprose from Warren Marnie, thank you for your time. It's been Thanks, Branko. I appreciate it. Thank you. No, it's been really, really, um, I guess, educational, in-depth, um, at times enthralling and, 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 and quite surprising, actually. So thank you for spending... Um, this uh, time. This is Frank Analytics signing off. I'm talking architecture and design. Until next time, goodbye. I'm Branko Melodic. Thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design, brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. The AD Network proudly presents the Sustainability Awards now in their 14th year. You can find more information at sustainablebuildingawards.com.au.